My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'll be preaching today from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. If you would uh, stand with me, I'll read from the Word. Verse 6, yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit. For his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's words to explain spiritual truths, but people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others, for who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to but we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How many of you, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just saw my dad walk in unexpectedly. Um, <laughs> how many of you uh, have seen a dead inside and Despite seeing the dead inside, decide to go on that road anyways. Raise your hand if you've ever done that before. Some people. Um, sometimes I'm curious. Sometimes I'm wondering if, if it really is a dead end, if, if maybe it's an almost dead end or a, or a not quite yet dead end. Right? You, you see the road and it, you can't see the dead end. It looks like it goes for a way. And, and it might just be the shortcut that allows you to get from here to there quicker than going all the way around. And so I've done that a few times, and lo and behold, um, most often when it says dead end, it really means it's a dead end. What's more frustrating, though, is, is you take a road that has no marker that says dead end, and it looks like it goes on forever, but eventually it becomes a dead end. My, my wife and I, we went to uh, the Greek islands last fall, uh, end of summer. And uh, one of the islands, we rented a car and we drove around. And we don't know the, the, the area, obviously. And, but we have GPS and we're just 
sort of meandering and around, and we see roads, and the roads are a little hit or miss out on the island. And we're trying to get back to a certain place, and we're heading in the right direction. We're on the road, and the, the pavement sort of gets a little bumpier, and it sort of uh, gives way to dirt, and it gets even more bumpier, and what was wide becomes more narrow, and pretty soon what was dirt becomes grass and bushes, and pretty soon you're up against some trees or the ocean. We've ran into a dead end several times. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you're at the dead end. It's, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to turn around. The question that I want to put forth for us this morning is, how, how can we see life's dead ends? How can we label them? How can we know that they're dead ends and avoid them? And so that's kind of the, the topic that I want to talk about this morning is thinking through what are the dead ends of life and how do we find the path to actually lead somewhere. Before we get into the, the bulk of the sermon, I want to look, start off by addressing a little bit of context in the verse here. So we pick up in verse 6. And in verse 6, Paul says, Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom. It's a contrast that he's drawing. In verse 4, he just said that uh, I do not use clever or persuasive speech. I rely only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. So he says, basically, I, I'm not using human wisdom in verse 4 and verse 5. But in verse 6, he says, I am using wisdom. Now, now some people will use this to, to mean that he's making some type of distinction with mature believers that there's a, there's a type of spiritual uh, wisdom that's sort of for elite Christians. Um, that once you graduate to this higher level, that there's this additional knowledge, this sort of second blessing type of knowledge or wisdom that we get access to. And I would argue that's, a, that's exactly not what he's saying. That's exactly not what he's saying. His, his whole, the, the, the main problem that Paul is addressing is disunity in the church. And the last thing he wants to do is try to argue that you can reach some special level to re- receive some special knowledge from God that would lead to further elitism and separatism within the church. But rather, the distinction he's making is between worldly wisdom on the one hand and spiritual wisdom on the other. And the maturity here is more in the sense of one's response to that wisdom. So imagine if I say to you, you know what, you should exercise, eat a well-balanced diet, and get sleep, and you'll live a healthier life. Now, one of you might say, nod and say, okay, and then promptly go and get two Big Macs, a 20-piece Chicken McNuggets, and lie on the couch and watch the Winter Olympics all night long. Now, another person might say, yep, that's correct, and that they actually go and exercise, eat a well-balanced diet, and get sleep. Now, the content of the message didn't change, but the response changed. To the one, it was wisdom, and to the other, it was a good thought at best. And so the, the question of maturity is not the difference in content. It is the response to that content. 
so the real contrast that Paul is making is between spiritual wisdom and worldly wisdom, and that's going to form the basis of the first two points of this message. The first point is that worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom is a dead end. Worldly wisdom is the dead end. Let's read verses 6 through 9 again. Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the foundation or before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What is worldly wisdom and why? Why is it a dead end? Let's start with with trying to define what worldly wisdom is. Is worldly wisdom what's being taught in schools? Is it self-help books? Is it cable news? Is it podcasts and blogs? What is worldly wisdom? Some would say, yes, all these forms are worldly wisdom and you should avoid them all. And so you see in some, in some Christian circles this a really separatist viewpoint that says, let's avoid all media, let's avoid anything that's secular, let's avoid anything that's non-Christian because it's all worldly and it's all bad. Let's don't watch movies, don't listen to secular music. We only do homeschooling. And I know I'm getting close to stepping on some toes here, but, but hear me out. Is anything non-Christian automatically considered worldly wisdom. Right now I'm reading a non-Christian book called The Leading Brain. Yes, I admit I do read non-Christian books. It is a self-help slash personal development book about how the knowledge of the brain can lead to peak performance. I like it. I asked for it for Christmas. And one of the chapters talks about how important sleep is to the brain performing well. Now, is that worldly wisdom? Strictly speaking, it is practical knowledge that if you adhere to it and follow it and listen to it, probably will produce some benefit in this world. And from that standpoint, there is a sense in which it's worldly wisdom. It's not otherworldly. But is this what Paul's talking about when he says in verse 6 that he doesn't speak with the wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world? Is Paul talking about math and science and history and the arts and technology? I don't think Paul is, is merely talking about anything specifically non-Christian. Here's why. In verse 8, Paul says that the rulers of the world didn't understand the true spiritual wisdom he was talking about. Like they are the ones, they're the ones of all people who should have the wisdom, right? 
Like, they're the ones who didn't understand what God was doing through Christ, but they're the ones who have all the resources, they have all the power, they have all the varied experiences, they have the best teachers. Like, you would think they should be able to make the best decisions. They should be able to understand the highest forms of wisdom. But they don't. In fact, if you continue reading, we see in verse 14 that they can't understand. Verse 14, it says, But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolishness to them, and they can't understand it. So it's not just that they don't want to understand, it's that they cannot understand because they're not spiritual. And so worldly wisdom then seems to be described as something that fundamentally excludes spiritual wisdom. Does accepting scientific truths fundamentally exclude spiritual wisdom? I would argue no. We, we know in history, Galileo, who didn't disbelieve God, but he believed that the earth revolved around the sun. The church believed that the sun revolved around the earth. And because of that, they condemned Galileo's belief. Galileo wasn't saying God's not right. He's just saying earth is moving. That's the way it seems to me. It's ironic that the church in this instance had a more uh, worldly view than Galileo. Scientific truth by itself, accepting it, does not exclude spiritual wisdom. It is just scientific truth. So then what type of worldly wisdom would exclude spiritual wisdom. I would say a spiritless worldview. A spiritless worldview. Not not simply a worldly statement about science or math or performance or music. You don't necessarily need to fear the geography or chemistry class in your local high school. What Paul is aiming for and attacking is something much bigger than that. Namely, a worldview or a way of life that is devoid and, and, and absent of the Spirit of God. It's a worldview that he's, that he's after here. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way of life. Some are highly refined and well thought out. Others are more spontaneous and free-flowing. But everyone has a way of thinking that seems right to them. They have principles that they work out, that they believe if worked together, lead to a life that's worth living, that lead to this life that says it's worth something. It's a worldview. And history has given us many differing worldviews and philosophies and religions. But they all sort of boil down to some basic principles. Many say the chief organizing principle is pleasure. The the thing that is right or the thing that is good is the thing that will give me the most pleasure. And so the chief end in anything is to pursue my pleasure. Others say 
the chief organizing principle or way of life is to pursue self-control, self-mastery. So if I have my desires in check, if I have my emotions in check, if I, if I can do what I always intend to do, if I can always say what I intend to say, I've mastered myself and I've achieved that place of whatever you want to call it, nirvana, heaven, self-enlightenment, success. So others think that the chief organizing principle is the avoidance of pain and suffering. So if I can just get my mind detached from things to the extent that they don't hurt me, they don't affect me, I don't suffer from it, then that is the state of bliss, the state of success that I'm after. Whatever it is, some, some say it's love, some say it's oneness. These, these systems of thoughts, these, these meta-narratives, if you will, that we create and we live out offer for us what we believe, what we hope will be a life that's well-lived. And the principles of these various philosophies become the wisdom by which we live our lives to achieve our definition of success. And I submit to you that this, this is what Paul means when he talks about worldly wisdom. He's talking about worldviews. And in the, in the time that Paul writes, uh, the Greeks and even the Romans, they held philosophers in high esteem. The people that we've read about in school, from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle, these people, these philosophers had a very large influence on the society of their day, and they continue to do so even in our day today. In Paul's day, Stoicism and Epicureanism were two very popular philosophies, and, and most of the rulers of that time would have been partial to one of those. The Greek and... Uh, but the common thread, the common thread between all these systems of thought is that they tended to de-emphasize a transcendent God who would actually interact with his creation. And they emphasized what was within the control of human beings to control. And so we either emphasize the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of self-control or the pursuit of enlightenment. In any case, we are the ones. It's, incumbent, it's incumbent upon us to bring about the success. We are the ones essentially bringing about our own salvation. So these worldviews, this, this worldly wisdom at, at their core excludes spiritual wisdom because they don't rely on the Spirit of God. They rely on the flesh. And that's the first dead end. Worldly wisdom alone cannot access true spiritual wisdom. It's a locked door them there's a second dead end and it's quite plain Paul says that the rulers of this world who have all the best wisdom that the world has to offer he says in verse 6 that they are soon forgotten they are soon forgotten the ESV renders it renders that as as doomed it's, it's interesting to think about that the rulers of the world those that we often look up to with the highest esteem, that we often aspire to, that we often think have 
the world at their disposal, Paul says they're doomed. Paul says they're soon forgotten. Like apparently the, the people that you think have the answers, at some level, they fail. And the implication is pretty clear. Right? Paul's not throwing that out just for fun. He's, he's throwing that out as another argument at the foolishness of worldly wisdom. Right? If you're basing your ultimate success on stoicism or hedonism or epicureanism or in today's philosophy, social activism, progressivism, conservatism, any ism, what have you, you're running into a dead end. Because you will be dead in the end. That's the point. We, these philosophies, what do they bring us in the grave? What does pleasure bring you in the grave? What does self-control do when you're no longer here? Like, it's a, I know it's sort of an obvious answer, like it doesn't do anything, but that's, that's the argument that, that Paul's making. That these rulers who killed Jesus, who didn't get it, they had all these philosophies, all these ways of life, but in the end, they're, 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 they're doomed. And if they don't have the answer, who has the answer? Worldly wisdom, at its highest levels, is a dead end. But there's one philosophy, there's one way of life, there's one type of wisdom that Paul preaches in this gospel that deals with death in a particular and peculiar way through Jesus. And this brings me to my second point. While worldly wisdom is a dead end, spiritual wisdom is the freeway. Worldly wisdom is a dead end. Spiritual wisdom is the freeway. Let me read verses 10 through 12. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit, for His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given to us. Paul starts off in verse 10 by saying that God revealed these things by his spirit. These things being what he's just talked about. It's the redemptive plan of God that was previously hidden, but now revealed in Christ Jesus. But then he, he makes an argument for why these things, why his plan must be revealed by the Spirit of God. And it goes like this. Only you truly know who you are. Let me give you an example. Um, I know John Prince. Angie knows John Prince better. John knows John best. Why? Because John knows the thoughts he thinks. He has access to all his thoughts. Hopefully. Angie might be able to read his body language, might be able to read between the lines, so to speak. 
but she doesn't have access to the comprehensive knowledge that John has about himself or that we have about ourselves. Like the argument's very simple, that we know our own thoughts. And so the parallel is true with God, that God knows God best. And in this passage, his, his spirit is his inner self. It's his thoughts. The spirit discerns the thoughts of God. And so if we don't have the spirit, we don't know God. We only know God by what the spirit reveals. And so that's the basic point. He's saying you don't get to God through human wisdom. Just like you don't get to another person by just trying to think up what they're thinking. They have to reveal themselves to And in the same way that someone has to reveal themselves to you is the same way that God, through his spirit, has to reveal who he is to us. And he says that those who have his spirit, they're the ones who understand uh, spiritual truths. They have a relationship with God. So let's bring this back. To the content of spiritual wisdom that Paul's writing about. If Paul's referring to God's redemptive plan throughout history, carried out in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if they believe he is, then in, in what sense, in what sense is the Spirit revealing the thoughts of God in the revelation of that plan? In other words, how is it that those who, love, who are in love with worldly wisdom, on the one hand, don't understand God's plan, while those who have the Spirit do. Does, does that make sense? Like, why do, why do people who only have worldly wisdom don't understand God's plan, and people who have God's Spirit understand it? Is it, is it, a, is it a question of not knowing the plan? Like, is it... Is it is it right to say that a non-Christian can't know the plan of God? No, it's not right, right? It's, the plan of God is pretty simple. God sent Jesus to save the world from their sins and give everlasting life. Like, anyone can articulate that. So what's the difference then? It's not simply that non-Christians aren't aware of it or can't articulate it. The point that Paul is making is that those who base their lives on worldly wisdom, they can hear the words of God's plan, but they don't understand its significance or its power. Paul earlier wrote that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. So while the worldly person might know the plan, they don't believe it, and they don't understand it. So then, how do people understand? They can only understand because the Spirit, who understands God, reveals the significance and the power of the message of the cross, as Paul writes, to those who are being saved. The power of the message of the cross is not accessed by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. And what is and what is the What is the power of the message of the cross? Paul writes in verse 12, We have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. The wonderful things that God has given us. 
I think these are referencing back to verse 7 where he says, no, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan, this plan that he's given us this plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. This plan, this redemptive plan of, of God sending his son into the world to redeem us, this he's given us, he's done for our ultimate glory. I think that, that word, that, that idea of ultimate glory is this idea of the thing that we all strive for. Like I could rephrase it as lasting worth. A lot of people use the terms like legacy. Like it has this idea of lasting value. And we want our lives to count. We want our lives to mean something. We don't want to just run around here and there and at the end of the day have it all be for naught. That's why people talk about what does it take to leave a legacy? Like we don't want to be soon forgotten. We don't want to be doomed. We want to have our life count. And, and God says there is a way to have your life count. And he's made this plan for our ultimate glory for our lasting worth, for a legacy, so that it would not be soon forgotten, so that we would not be doomed. It's not a dead end. It is the end. It's the point. This is the point of why we live. And the, the, the beauty and the mystery of what God has revealed through His Spirit is that this beautiful end, this of our ultimate glory, of our lasting worth, is not something that we have to spend a lifetime hoping we can attain, hoping we can earn, hoping we measure up to. But it's that something, it's something that God freely gives us something that God freely gives us. And so when I say that the spiritual wisdom is the freeway, I mean it's the only way to realizing lasting worth that's truly free to us. Every other path is laden with costs and price that we cannot pay. It's laden with burdens that we cannot bear, hopes that cannot be fulfilled. God says the good news of his plan, apart from every other plan in the world, is that this, this lasting hope, this lasting legacy, this ultimate glory that we hope for, God freely gives us. There is no dead end. It is the end for which God created us. And God said he's had this plan from before he created the world. This wasn't plan B or C. This was his first plan his best plan and it was a plan that he would make sure would work we don't need to get it right first let me read this actually revelation 22:17 the spirit and the bride say come let every anyone who hears say come let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water 
of life. We don't need to get right first. He says, come. We don't need to get our affairs in order. He says, come. We don't need to master our self-control. He says, come. We don't need the right education, the right social status, or the right job. He says, come. As you are, freely, with all of your suffering, with all of your shortcomings, with all of your pain, with all of your guilt, with all of your shame, he says, come, just like you are, freely, without cost. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Every other philosophy, every other way of life says, do this first, study this first, examine all the philosophies, figure out even if you exist first, and then you might maybe achieve the hope, the success you long for. Jesus says, skip all that. Those are dead ends. There's a free way for you in Jesus. That's the gospel. His grace. That's the difference between Christianity and other worldviews. They demand of you cost. Jesus says it's free because I've paid the cost. And it costs Jesus dearly. And this is the foolishness of the cross. This is the part we shouldn't skip over. It's the thing that the very thing of Christianity that, that cannot be deduced by logic or reason. It's the central tenet. It's the key distinction of Christianity that God in his wisdom decided to restore our relationship with him through sending his son Jesus to die for our sin and transgression. The grand aha in all of the universe, in all of history, the pinnacle point of wisdom is the death of God. What? The death of God? This is the pinnacle of all human, of all wisdom in history? God dies. Who would have thunk it? Who would have dreamed it? Who would have wrote that as the ending, as the pinnacle, as the climax of God's story? Human reasoning doesn't get us there. Only the Spirit knows the things that God has planned for those who love Him. Why would God kill a part of Himself? And how would that restore our relationship to God? Because only on the cross can God be fully God and still offer forgiveness. Why? Because on the cross, sin is rightfully punished. Past sin, present sin, future sin, my sin, your sin, everyone's sin. All of it punished on the person of Jesus. So God is fully just, perfectly just. No sin is unpunished. Everything is made right 
on the person of Jesus. God's justice is not harmed. But because all sin is paid for in Jesus, God can then forgive and not be a hypocrite. God can forgive and not be accused of being unjust. We would have never dreamed of the cross. We would have never dreamed that killing God was the way to reestablish our relationship with him. But God did. And God has. And that's the good news. That's the peculiar distinctiveness of the Christian faith that we believe in that differentiates it from every other worldview out there. That God can freely offer salvation and forgiveness because he did something strange and oftentimes foolish in our eyes to send his son to die for us. But this is the message. It doesn't need to be adorned with fancy logic, with fancy eloquent words. It's very simple. Jesus sent his son to die for our sins so that we can be made right and have everlasting life with God. That's our ultimate glory. And that's the pure and plain message of the gospel. Worldly wisdom is a dead end. Spiritual wisdom is the freeway. The third point and concluding application is eloquently, eloquently worded, uh, I would say. Um, stop pursuing dead ends when you have the freeway available to you. I didn't know how to make it any more clever than that. I don't want to. But, but that is the point. Like, God has given us the labels of dead ends. He said all the other ways, they're dead ends. Just picture a sign in your mind when you start doubting the goodness of God that it's a dead end. It's a whatever, a triangle, a square, you know, whatever. It's a dead end. Don't go. You'll just create more heartache for yourself and lose time. Now, I want to read verses 13 through 16 and, and, and talk about a few implications um, based on uh, understanding spiritual wisdom. Verse 13, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it for only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means those who are spiritual can evaluate all things but they themselves cannot be evaluated for others for who can know the lord's thoughts who knows enough to teach him but we understand these things for we have the mind of christ um thinking of application paul here is actually applying uh point number two that spiritual wisdom uh, is 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 life essentially? Um, it is the way. It's the freeway. By seeking to avoid human wisdom in how he preaches and teaches, and instead he's saying, instead of using these other clever words or what he says, I'm using the spirit's words. Now, what does Paul mean? Does he mean he's he's waiting to hear some special words from the spirit before he can go preach the gospel? Some people might teach that. Okay, you need to use the Spirit's words. So before you ever talk about the gospel, wait and pray. And when you hear the magic words, then shoot. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about. 
He's not waiting to hear special words. Because the context of what Paul's after, he's again trying to, to foster unity. So he's, he's more concerned with uniting them around the basics. The basics of what the message is. The same spirit that we receive, we all receive. Not just some people, anyone who receives, who, who believes, who calls upon the name of the Lord, has the mind of Christ, and therefore is able to understand these things. The question then, what is, what is the message? Well, he says earlier in verse 1 through 4, he doesn't come with lofty speech or with impressive wisdom, but he spoke the message plainly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what I wanted to do, what I thought was helpful for me and, and might be helpful for you, is just to think through what is the basic message of the gospel. Like, if you could break it down into its core components, what would they be? And I'd like to submit to you that um, as I was looking at, and sorry for the slide background, I couldn't find one that, that matched, so it's kind of random. But anyhow, basic components of the good news. And, and this I just pulled from 1 Corinthians. And, and I think it lines with, with all of Scripture. But looking at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2, verses 9, verses 18, 23, and verses 30. Based on those five verses, um, I pulled out these four things that, that the basic gospel message has. There's, there's a redeemer who is Jesus. There is a rescue that is accomplished through the cross, Jesus' death. There's a response to that work of Jesus. And that response is faith and repentance. And then there's a result. There was the result of that work that Jesus did when we respond to that, that there's actual reconciliation. There, the, right, reconciliation implies that something was broken and split apart, and now you're you're reconciling, you're bringing it back together. You're fixing what was torn apart. And so as part of that, there's, there's redemption and sanctification and forgiveness. But the, the, the action, the primary result of it is reconciliation. And I, I would encourage you to think, you can word these differently. And, but at the end of the day, you come to some basic things that are kind of true regardless. And what I did is I put this into a statement, and it might be a fun exercise for you to, to go through it and just think through what your statement would be. Oh, if you can go to the next slide, this was the statement. Like, if this is a basic message, if I don't have to study for 20 years before I can communicate my faith to someone, um, I just did this in like five minutes based on reading this passage before. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I would be united with God both now and forever. And there's a lot baked into that. Like, there's a lot of depth to that. It doesn't mean that whenever you're talking about sharing your faith, like, I got one sentence for you. It's, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Blah, blah, blah. But what about this? Well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. It doesn't mean that. It just means that's the core of it. And yeah, there's, there's like, who's Jesus? Well, Jesus lived, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth. There's depth to that for sure. But at its core, the message of the gospel is very simple, and it shouldn't be something to be afraid of. 
And it should be something that if we truly understand it, we can communicate it very simply. So I would encourage you not to get caught up in sort of undue burdens of thinking of all the study I need to have before I fully understand it. That God, God in his wisdom has made the message very plain, very grasped, able to be grasped if we have the Spirit. That's the key to it. The Spirit of God unlocks this for us and makes it plain and makes it helpful. The implications, and I'll just, I'll just speak on these briefly. The implications of understanding the basic message of the gospel. Number one, it helps us to avoid uh, what I would call Christian dead ends. It helps us to avoid what I would call Christian dead ends. What's a Christian dead end? It's a road that looks like it points to Christ, but really points to some secondary issue. So let me get, let me get straight to the point. When, when you meet Jesus on Judgment Day, um, he's not going to give you a quiz on Calvinism. He's not going to ask you if you believe if tongues is for today. Jesus is not going to uh, judge you based on whether you went to church on Sunday or Saturday. Jesus is not going to... Uh, ask you if you were sprinkled with water and, and, and wonder uh, if you got too wet when you were fully immersed. Jesus, while those things are unimportant, Jesus is concerned with really one thing. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? In, in Matthew chapter 7, we see that there's some people who will meet Jesus and they will say, we prophesied for you. We cast out demons for you. We did mighty works for you. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, we're here. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And I think to some extent, sometimes we can get so caught up in a lot of things that we really make up ourselves. And somewhere along the lines, it got lost on us that the fact that the real point of it is to know Jesus and follow him. It's that simple. Do we know Jesus? Like, do we talk with him? Do we, is he real in our day-to-day lives? You know, my wife and I, and I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I think this is just real life. You know, we had a little bit of an argument this, this weekend. And there was some tension that I felt. We both felt. But we both said, let's pray. We prayed. We asked God. I don't, you know, we can argue it out and reason it out, but without God's help, it doesn't seem like it's going to be solved. And we talked it out a little bit Friday, but the tension was still there. We continued to pray. And the only thing I can say is, you know, we, we got up on Saturday, and the tension was there, and, and we started talking. And all of a sudden, like, the tension faded. Like, we talked it out. And to me, it was very clear that it was God helping us in that moment. That God answered our prayer. Like, he's real. And, I, and, and we, we, that, that's the relationship we can have. It's not just something we believe and we close the book and we walk away and go to our lives. But it's something that we take with us in our heart because he's real. And he reveals and he helps us. And this is life. And so that's what I want to encourage you with this morning do you know Jesus? Do you, if you don't know Jesus, you can know Jesus today. 
It's not about your church attendance. It's not about the good things you do. It's about, do you know the creator of the universe who has a plan for your ultimate glory, your lasting worth, your future legacy? This Jesus wants you as you are right now, free of cost. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us your spirit, for revealing your truth to us, for giving us help when we're in need, for giving us comfort, for showering us with your love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to Give us eyes to see where we are tempted to go into dead ends and ditches. Help us to see the labels that you put in front of them. Remind us of the basic truth of your gospel. Call us back to your son. Call us back to the first principle that we first heard when we believed. For those who don't, Lord, I pray that you would use your word fan into flame, a desire to seek you and to know you, Lord, to to turn away from false hopes and dreams, to turn away from dead-end philosophies and worldviews, and to see the gift that you freely give to all those who believe. Lord, we thank you and pray in your precious At this time, we also take communion. We do this.